Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, June 14th, 2016, and this is episode 1807 of the Survival Podcast. And today's a Tuesday show. That means today is a show chosen by you, the audience. Uh, we ran a poll for this month for the Tuesday shows, and uh, as we did last week, uh, the, one of the winners was your first year on a new homestead. The other winners are Eating Like a King on a Below Average Income, The Twelve Planks of Modern Survivalism, or Revisit Eight Years After I First Created Them, and the one we're going to be doing today, the one that won, the number one voted on uh, episode for this month by a long shot, Four Years of Flux, The Rapid Changes Between Now and 2020. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's really three and a half years of flux, but yeah, three and a half years of flux doesn't sound good, so I'm calling it four years of flux. Uh, a little bit of marketer has to come through, I guess, in all things to, uh, to get people's attention. But what I want to kind of talk to you about today is what's coming in the next four-ish years, uh, what to expect, what to do about it, and why we really are at what I would call numerous tipping points. You often hear people that are of the hysterical nature saying, the earth is at a tipping point. And reality is society, humanity, and the economy are at multiple tipping points right now. Now, not all tipping points are bad. Um, we were at a tipping point in what I would call the data revolution in 1995. And it wasn't a bad thing. What that meant was, that in the world of telecommunications, voice was becoming secondary, and voice had been what telecommunications really was for almost 70 years. And no one believed it. No one believed people at AT&T and, 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 and what have you, when you would have this conversation with them, because I was in that industry back then, they didn't believe it. Oh, well, everybody's going to voice, 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 voice. And today, voice is over data. It's just a piece of what data does. And so that was a tipping point, but it wasn't a bad tipping point. Some of the tipping points are bad, though. We'll be talking about all of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1807. And I have two for you from Alex Shrug today. U.S. neutrality at any cost, and the slave trade is abolished. In other news, some bullet points. Versa is a planet for now. It's actually an asteroid. They don't know what that is yet. Gaslighting comes to London streets. It's only a demonstration, but science is pushing back the darkness. Robert E. Lee is born in Virginia. General Lee will command the Confederate Army during the American Civil War, and his estate will become Arlington Cemetery. I think a lot of people probably didn't know that, that Arlington Cemetery is General Lee's estate. Um, I'm going to read for you The Slave Trade is Abolished because it actually, believe it or not, has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about today. The British Parliament has finally abolished the slave trade throughout the British Empire with a vote of 136 in the House of Lords where it is stalled in previous years. The House of Commons is a slam dunk. William Wilberforce is the man behind the movement when he entered politics. He was not a particularly religious man, but he has become so over time. Over 26 years, he's been fighting for the abolition of slavery. While he longed for the emancipation of all slaves, he knew that he could not get that through Parliament, so he had managed to abolish the trading of slaves within the empire. 
This will be more proactive than one might think. The West African squadron will be formed and aggressively blockade British slave trips, uh, ships, but two years later they will stop any slaver flying any flag. At this time, the United States has made the importation of slaves illegal. Slave trading itself will continue in the USA, but only with existing slaves. The smuggling of slaves will continue. Slavery will remain legal within the British Empire until 1833. Slavery in the USA will continue until 1863, when President Lincoln will issue his Emancipation Proclamation. My take by Alex Shrug, the United States waited because in the Constitution, no federal law limiting slavery could be imposed until 1808. I think most Americans find this fact embarrassing, certainly I do, but if slavery had been abolished immediately, Virginia would have collapsed economically. Thus, Virginia wouldn't have voted for the Constitution. Then there was a three-fifths rule of counting slaves in a congressional district. If slaves were counted one for one, there could be more congressional districts created in slave states, but fewer eligible voters. Slaves couldn't vote. Slave owners could. Thus, slave owners would have had too much power in the legislature. In other words, when I vote in a low-turnout election, my voting power is increased, where if I live in a district with a lot of immigrants I can't, that can't vote, my power is increased. Thus, The pocket of eligible voters could create a safe district where they always get what they want and everyone else doesn't because the others can't vote. Hmm. Uh, my take on this, if we would have abolished slavery at the forming of the Constitution, the economy of Virginia would have collapsed. I believe that many people believe that. I do. I believe it may have been true short term. But I believe if Virginia, for instance, and other southern states, by the way, were able to produce certain crops, and there was a market for those crops, and there were people that wanted jobs, then the economy wouldn't have just collapsed, and it just wouldn't have went away, and it wasn't impossible. And this is, this is why this ties into today's show. Every time you hear somebody say, but without this law, without this restriction, without this oppression, without this violence, without this brutality, how would we? Think about somebody saying, but without slaves, who will pick the cotton? But without slaves, who would pick the cotton? I mean, I know there were technological increases and things like that, but do you, do you really believe if slavery hadn't been abolished eventually that you wouldn't have had slaves running combines? I mean, seriously. The, 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 what actually would have done away with slavery is that as we moved into a more mechanized society when the cost of energy from fuel was so much lower than the cost of energy from human beings. And, and that's part of what would have created it anyway. But up until that point, they, they would have said there's no way to do this. There's no way to do this. And after the, the Civil War, as we moved into Reconstruction, the economy actually rebuilt itself very, very quickly. Because when you don't have the option of doing something, you figure out the things you do have the option of doing. Keep that in mind as we, we talk about things today on today's show. And I do want to point out something that I've heard come from black Americans that I think is basically them not understanding how bad things really were, though they try to make it like it actually shows how bad things really were. That's the three-fifths rule. What you'll hear some people say from that side of things is, well, we only counted as three-fifths of a person. Um, I can see how if I were a person that was black I could and was taught that, I would feel very much oppressed by that and very offended by that. But, but the reality is you aren't counted as a person at all 
you were only counted for the purpose of letting some other person speak on your behalf, and in that case, a person that pretty much owned you and your family if you were you know had ancestors back then. The, the three-fifths rule was about actually limiting the power of the, the, the white people in the, in the slave states rather than limiting the power of the black people in the slave states. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sick, dark time of our past, but it's also something that we have to learn from rather than continue to basically pull the scab off of a healing wound and, 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 and re-cause a new infection. We should be learning from the fact that all of that horrible things that went on were, were indeed not necessary. And then maybe we look at the horrible things going on today and realize that, well, they're not necessary either, instead of lulling ourselves to believe that, well, they are, because, well, it keeps us comfortable. And with that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. All right, so what I want to do today is take you for a look into the next three and a half, four years. Um, let's call it four years because... Up till June of 2020, we haven't even finished that year. So it could really be four and a half years because that would take us all the way to the end of 2020 to 2021. First of all, I'm going to ask you a question. Does it feel weird? Does it feel just a little bit weird to think about it won't be that far into the future that when the ball drops in New York City, it will be New Year 2020? And that you will be able to say it's the 20s. It's the 20s. And talk about the 20s. Is that alone something a little bit weird? Because if you're a kid like me from the 70s and 80s, you grew up in the 70s and 80s, and there were people around who talked about the 20s. I remember back in the 20s when I was a little kid. They were old, but they talked about it, and they were there. And it was a weird thing. The 20s seemed like forever ago. And just think about this, guys. Just a little aside here. It's been, or it will have been, 20 years since people used that colloquialism. The 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Because what was the zeros or the teens? No one really calls it this, the teens, right? No one says get with dimes, it's the teens. Or it's the zeros. Or the single digits, or whatever the hell you would call it. You've lived long enough, if you remember the 80s, the 70s, the 90s, to transition through that period alone. It can make you feel old if you're in your 40s or older like I am. It really can, because you probably do remember people that remember the 20s and the 30s. And we're heading into the next edition of those things. And much like the old 20s and 30s, there'll be a tremendous shift in society during this time frame. Um... I do want to reiterate, I don't think the world is on a tipping point. I think we're on just tremendous numbers of tipping points on multiple fronts, technology-wise, um, 
with our views philosophically, economically, and just education everywhere. That just there's this constant flux that's going on. That's why I picked the term where all of these things are going to radically transition because they have to. And understand, I'm not someone who claims to be a futurist or a prophet, just a person that pays attention. And I'm not willing to let others tell me what will or won't happen. I'm not going to tell you that something will happen just because somebody wrote an article and said it will. And I'm not going to tell you it won't happen because somebody else wrote an article and said it wouldn't. I'm going to look at where we're at and what is logical and reasonable to occur over the next four years and really 14 years, all the way through the 20s is kind of what I'm thinking about right now and realizing that you know I'll be a guy that comes into my 50s and 60s during this time frame. And I've got work to do. And I'm going to be working through this, and many of you will as well. And uh, a lot of us that have watched people older than us retire into their 60s and 70s, I think our retirements are going to be dramatically different, maybe in some ways better and maybe in some ways economically and not a lot worse if we're not prepared ourselves to deal with them. Um Over the years, I have racked up a lot of spot-on predictions. I have called things uh, to, to, to the, like a, a, an infinite level of detail that, that people have looked back at and went, wow, how'd you know that? It just, it just made sense. For instance, one would have been the, the health care bill. And not just that it would pass, but before it was on the floor, I said it would pass. Um, I said that it would be terrible. I said that it was actually designed to destroy uh, health insurance. And that it would lead us to a point where the next president would be in a position to institute an actual government takeover. The people that fought it the hardest would give in because they'd have no choice financially. How's that looking right now? How many of you, as much as you would hate it, are at a breaking point economically? And how many of you, if your employer stopped paying for it, would be instantly? And how many of you would be at a breaking point with health care costs and insurance costs if you didn't have a job. And then you were on government health care anyway in some sort of Medicaid, Medicare, what, what have you. And then just think about how many people are going to be losing jobs in the next four years, eight years, ten years. And, and so we're set ready for that. So I, I believe that that's an example. The stock market crash of 2008, I, I couldn't have been more clear about that. There's lots of things like that, but I've also blown some. And I, I've been completely wrong. When gas went over three bucks, I said it would never go below three bucks. I, I can look back now and give you, I won't play armchair quarterback and look back and say all the things I missed and whatever and why I wasn't thinking that way and make excuses. I'm just saying I can get stuff wrong. And I'm being honest about that. I think that's important. Um, we are at a very unique point in history, though. There has never been a time like this, and I mean ever. Ever. And every generation seems to believe that because people that want your attention say it, especially when they want you to vote for them or vote against somebody. Uh, and people like to feel special. People like to feel important. People like to feel like they are the ones, the chosen, the few, the proud, the brave, whatever. Okay, Or the most oppressed. You can, you can actually get people on your side by telling them they're the best ever or they're the worst ever, as long as you blame the fact that they're the worst on somebody else. Because people like to feel like they're at the extremes. But this is true. And it is true this time because of so many things. But I just want to give you a technological evolution over the last 21 years. In 1995, almost nobody was online. It was a very rare thing for somebody to be, have Internet in their home yet. People did, but it was rare. 
AOL was just beginning to spam our real mailboxes with CDs that we could put into a computer and get on the internet with over our phone lines. A 14.4 modem was pretty fast, and a 28K was smoking. Okay? Um, it was going to be three more years before Google was even founded back in 1995. But Yahoo was born that year in March. March of 1995, Yahoo was born. And it was a simple web directory. It wasn't a search engine. It was just a bunch of, like a bunch of categories and listed sites. That's all that it was. There was no such thing as a smartphone. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter, Slack. There was no social media at all. No Snapchat, no nothing, no Pinterest, nothing. You clicked on a picture, you had to wait for it to load. I was using a pager for work. Only senior, senior managers in my company had phones. There were two of them uh, at that time. I was working for a company that had, I think, about, I guess, about 200 employees in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and that because we had multiple offices, but about 200 employees locally here. And I had a pager, and I was a um, basically like a crew leader, right? A lead tech, they called it, senior associate technician, official title. And um, then we had project managers that were above us, and then we had our senior managers, and we had two seats. So there were two cell phones in a company of 200 people, and none of the people that worked for me had pagers unless they had their own pager. And, and now today, everybody has a smartphone, right? Um, I still had a tape player in my vehicle that played cassette tapes, and I listened to cassette tapes. And frankly, CD players were still in cars. I know most cars today, they come with a sound system. They still have that slot to stick a CD in, but very few people actually use it because we have other ways of getting music into our vehicle, like just tethering our phone with Bluetooth. You know, it wouldn't even be at that time. In 1995, it was going to be six more years. 2001, the first iPod would let you put a measly thousand songs on it, and it was like earth-shattering. And people were afraid of it because it was too complicated. They didn't know how to work it. In 1995, a one-gig hard drive on a computer was huge. And now we have 256-gig USB drives that hang on a keychain. That's only 20, 21 years ago. And nothing has slowed down. In fact, it's all speeding up. In those same 20 years, looking at economics, China's D GDP doubled, making it second only to the U.S. as a global economic superpower. Russia rebuilt itself after the fall of the USSR into a new military and economic superpower. The last five years, the Middle East has turned into a complete quagmire. Everything we were told about it becoming another Vietnam is actually not only true, but worse. The Middle East is now worse than Vietnam ever was on its darkest day. Because the truth was, when we left Vietnam, in the end, Vietnam put itself back together. And today, the U.S. and Vietnam actually have pretty good trade relations. We have a disaster in the Middle East because we've caused so much disruption in so many different places, in so many different cultural boundaries. All this stuff is typical, though, really. The, 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 the economic flux, the geographic flux, the, the changing of borders and nations, the changing of rulers and nations, the rise and fall of, of economic and, and military superpowers, this all has happened before. What's never happened is it's never happened with the leaps in technology that we have going on. It's never happened before. So those the, the, the holdup has been there's been certain norms that have been held in place by a lack of technology to substitute for them. 
So even though we went from horse and carriage to car, you still had to physically move product with horse and carriage and car and truck and train and rail, et cetera, and plane. And then somebody still had to do that. Today we move more product digitally than we do physically. And the physical products are being moved more and more through digital means. It's only like the last link. If you look at the way Amazon does things, I bought something Sunday morning on Amazon, and by 5 o'clock Sunday evening it was at my fence. And there's no reason to believe that last piece, somebody bringing it to me, can't be done by automation. Or if we needed to get somebody educated, there had to be a teacher, and there had to be a certain number of teachers to a certain number of students, or it wouldn't work. There, there's all of these different things that have been held in check, and that's created some level of a holdback on how much change could happen, how fast in the world. And, and today, we're literally peeling the lid off of it. And it's a big lid, and we've just really started to crack the lid, but as we peel it back, more and more shit's going to come out of the jar is the way to think out of it. And more and more people with good and bad agendas are going to use it and leverage it to make their case for what they want in the world. I just want to start out with some things that I think will be on the way out by 2020 to the point where, when, when, even if it's still here, when you say it, people will be like, oh yeah, that's, that's true. I want you to think about it like this. So long before records went really away, and I know there's some retro hipsters that still play vinyl. That's fine. It's gone as an industry. It's dead. It's freaking dead. Don't try to tell me it's not dead. It's dead, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead. If you compare it to MP3 files being played, it is an infinitesimal mouse fart in a world of pachyderms taking dumps. Okay, That's how tiny it is. But back in the 80s, when the writing was on the wall, because people were already using you know cassette tapes, and the 8-track was already kind of like, eh, it's in my, I have a couple of those for my uncle because the car I bought from the 70s has an 8-track player, but... If I replace it, I'm going to put another one of those in there, right? But they were still hanging on to records. And he said, records are done. And the first CDs were just starting to come out. And he was like, no, no, there will always be records. People like records. And then, you know, a year or two later, there were still records floating around. But when you said they were done, people were like, oh, yeah, that's, that's that, yeah. Like, they always believed it. And that's how I mean a lot of these things will be by 2020. People know they're done now. People know they're done. But the majority don't believe it. They won't accept it. They have a mental block. One we've talked about a lot is conventional education. Conventional education is going to have one of the most rapid fluxes over the next four years. First of all, we now have millions of homeschoolers. Millions. right? It used to be a tiny handful. It's now millions. And it's growing every single day. Every single day. And every time children are pulled out of the government schools and go into, and I'm not going to say anything good or bad about this, I'm just telling you what's happening, and go into any alternative form of education, it weakens that government system. And more and more people, because there's millions of them out there, are meeting children that are 14, 15, 16 years old, that are homeschooled, and going, holy shit, these kids are so far beyond where the average kid is at that age, that there's something good about this. So it's being, it's, it's being sold by people seeing it. I'll tell you what I mean. Recently I interviewed a couple different kids for a job of farmhand. 
I didn't hire this girl because she was a bit small of frame, and I thought some of the work I needed done would have been a bit tough for her. And because, honestly, the other young man that I hired really thought he could use the opportunity, and I think this girl's going to get plenty of opportunities. So I saw a chance to be a mentor to a young man, and I took that opportunity. And I think he's more suited to the job. But I'm interviewing her, and I, because she was a minor, she's 16, I had her father come with her for the interview, because if I'm going to have a minor work for me, the parent is going to approve the work environment. So we're, we're talking for just a little bit, and I go, you're homeschooled, aren't you? And she goes, yeah. And I'm like, I knew it. I could tell by the way she handled herself. I could tell by the way she spoke. I could tell by the way her manners were and her mannerisms were that she was homeschooled. She might as well wore a T-shirt says, I'm homeschooled. It was that obvious and in a very positive way. That alone, but the technology is what's going to really blow it up. So the technology is going to allow for better education faster without the need for buildings, which alone is a massive savings. And as, more, and we'll, as we talk about that, you'll see the government will become more and more into a, a forced understanding that you don't have the money to do all this shit anymore. So all of these things will, will combine. Here's another thing that's going to happen. As we'll talk about, there's going to be a lot of jobs lost. So one of the main reasons parents have their kids in school today is why? Because they have to work. Well, if I'm sitting at home anyway because I don't have a freaking job, I might as well homeschool my kids since it's going to come out and work out better. Just saying. Most manufacturing jobs are, are by, by 2020, now, there's a difference between manufacturing and fabrication, but even the fabrication thing is going to go. But if you're custom fabrication and all. But that's going to be done by computer. That's not going to be done by somebody physically doing it. It'll, it'll be done by basically robots that just follow commands. And we already have this technology. It's just it's becoming more affordable, and it's making more economic sense. See, part of this is a whole cascade. So you think what you want about Obamacare. I, I, politically, I don't give a shit anymore. I don't. But economically, it's making employees more expensive. And as you have a continued upward pressure of inflation, continued pressure toward raising wages, etc., and yet you don't really have a greater influx to the average company as far as income related to the employee, the employee becomes more expensive. Even if they cost the same in dollars, they become more expensive versus the, 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 the mechanism of the company is a ratio. So they become, as a unit cost against a produced good or service, more of a burden. And so what then happens is you start to realize that really expensive robotic system will pay for itself in two years. And then you don't have to worry about those people anymore. So we bring that in. And then that sends the people home. And that cascades into people that might as well, you know, if I can't get a job, I, I might as well homeschool the kids. Because, well, one of us doesn't have a job anyway, and there's no prospects to get a job anytime soon in my my. So uh, you want to start some kind of small home business or something like that, might as well homeschool the kids. And then that cascades into kids not wanting to go to college. Because why am I going to... So we'll, we'll save that for a second. Most agricultural jobs. Most agricultural jobs. Now, I'm talking about mainstream food production here. I, I'm, I'm not talking about the small urban gardens and things like that. I think that's one of the places that will be so unique in the future 
then more and more people will gravitate toward it. But the stuff that fills up the grocery shelves, it's already largely automated, but the automation that will come is, 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 is going to be terrifying and fantastic at the same time. They already have robots that can drive down a row of plants and visually determine weed, good plant, and either using very small amounts of herbicide, which of course I don't like, but it's still less than spraying the whole field, spot spray that one plant. Or with a little mechanical de destroyer, basically, like a little punch, it just destroys the weed. And it just drives up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And oh, by the way, we can make them solar panel uh, powered. We'd have that same robot configured to then harvest for us, even plants and crops that up till now have been hand harvested. I mean, wheat, corn, barley, rice, all that stuff we have mechanical harvesting for. But in general, you get oranges, whether to peel or to drink orange juice from, because somebody goes out there and physically pulls them off the trees. These days are going. All of this stuff is being automated. And you get to a point where you have automated vehicles and automated equipment, you don't even need somebody to drive the truck to the processing facility or someone to unload it. This is where we're going. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be there by 2020, but no one's going to doubt it anymore. Everybody's going to look at it and go, oh, shit, it's really happening. Because you'll see the first wave of millions eliminated from the workforce, and everybody else will begin to realize it's coming. The general practitioner doctor is done. The GP, why do you think there's so many women, go, and I'm sorry, women and men both, getting, you know, basically like PAs, physician assistants, nurse practitioner? Because it's not worth it to be a doctor anymore unless you're going to go and be a surgeon or a specialist. And even many of those guys, they're on the way out. They're on the way out. In the numbers that we're accustomed to. We're going to have equipment that a person can be trained to run in five minutes that's going to diagnose a person completely. Probably not in five years, but in ten. Or less. It probably will exist, but it won't be that widespread, but it will just continue to grow. Um, and, I mean, I think what you're going to see first is a tremendous number of low-level and service jobs. They'll be the ones that go first. They'll be the ones that go first. Stocking groceries on shelves... Not going to be necessary. Yes, your local Tom Thumb will have a robot that stocks shelves. Why? Because it works better than Jimmy who gets sick and doesn't want to come to work and it's going to cost less and less to have one. I think grocery shopping is going to go to Amazon model. In fact, Amazon might be the ones to do it. Um, you'll just pick all your shit and a robot will just pull it and package it and deliver it to you. I know you don't believe me. I, I know you don't. But, again... There's tons of things that were going to disappear that nobody believed would ever disappear. Like jobs at steel mills in western and eastern Pennsylvania. They'll never go away. How's that working out for you? I mean, that's actually far more diff. If you go back to that time, the 1950s and 60s, when American steel was still king, and those men worked in those mills, and their dad had worked in the mill, and their uncle worked in the mill, and their uncle was the foreman that had their back. And you told them that in 20 years that most of this would be gone. They would have just could never believe it. It's much easier to believe that a robot can be you know, trained to pull a box of Rice Krispies off of a shelf, shove it in a box, load it into an autonomous vehicle that will deliver it to your door. That's actually only hard to believe if you want it to be hard to believe. And do it for less than having humans do it.
That's all that has, see, that's what people don't understand today. All that has to happen is we get to the point where it costs less to do that than it does to have a person do it. And at that point, the economy demands that it be done. And the current IPR paradigm I also see just going, just disappearing. I'm not saying there won't be any patents by 2020 or anything like that, or any patent trolls or anything like that. But what I'm saying is the concept that an idea can be owned and controlled is on its way out the door and good riddance. Um, we've seen a lot with the rise of open source and things like that, but I think people are just not going to tolerate it anymore. See, I think we're, we're reaching a point with IPR that, or intellectual property rights is, is what that means for those that maybe don't know. Um, we're reaching a point with IPR that I talked about yesterday. If people refuse to obey, a law has no teeth. If one person or 20 people or 50 people or a thousand people refuse to obey a law, then it has teeth because then they can send their enforcers out, they can put you in jail, they can find you, they can shut you down. But when millions upon millions of people just ignore a law, then the law becomes so irrelevant that technology has to evolve to compensate for it. An example is music. Um, you know, Napster was kind of the first big one, but there were tons of them, LimeWire, things like that, where basically with, with, with LimeWire, and I used that back in the day myself when I wanted music, you basically had every computer became a host, right, peer-to-peer -peer host. And I might have a song you want, and so does three other people, and you'd go to download that song, and it might download a piece from each of us and then reassemble it on your end. That's how LimeWire worked. And then you had music. And all of those things are pretty much shut down or evolved to the new model. But, you know, it used to be 15 bucks to buy a CD. And I guess it still is if you buy CDs. But you can go on Apple Music now for $10 a month and listen to any song whenever you want, as long as you want, entire albums. You can create playlists. You can anything. Anything at all. And you know what? In 1996, I wrote an article that I think could still be found, even though the site is gone, on archive.org. about the, And I'll look for it today, if I remember, to put it in the show notes and remind me when I don't, like I did it yesterday, uh, with the, the canner I didn't put in the notes, but about how the music industry would have to shift and what they would do. And the only thing that I have different than what is today is I said it would be browser-based because we didn't have smartphones work the way that they do today with all the apps and stuff to this level um, back when I wrote that article. It might have been 2004 that I wrote that article. And it was basically that you would have a subscription service to be able to listen to any music you wanted as long as you wanted. And it was just, see, people go, well, how would you know that? Well, because there's no way that you wouldn't know that if you actually looked at the evolution. So what's the next evolution with that? You, you can't control it anymore, so then everybody competes for how can you best distribute it. And that's what they're doing now. That's what Spotify and iTunes and all this. And then there's still some you know tribute paid back to the artists in some form of royalty. But it's not like it used to be. There's not enough money for it to be like it used to be. Because there's not, you know, you have to go out and buy a CD that you could just dub or a tape that you could just dub. And these, these like doomsday predictions, it's all about how we handle them. I remember when I was a kid, I bet you guys do too. The very first tape decks that came out that were dual tape decks. And you could get a tape, you know, an album, and you could stick it in one, and then you could put a blank tape in the other one, and you could push some buttons, 
and they even had a high-speed feature where it would go twice as fast, and the tape you purchased would be duplicated for free. And the music industry said the world was going to end, the artists were going to starve to death, whatever, but yet we've had this continual evolution. And that's what's going to happen, but but the IPR paradigm is is, is going to go bonkers in seven... I can't even tell you where it's going to go, because it's going to go in so many different directions. But you're going to get to a point where people just don't give a shit. Well, you can't make this, you can't build that, whatever, with 3D printers, that thing's patented. Yeah, well, uh, if you want to climb in the back of my TV and figure out that I printed a, a, P, a part for my TV to work, go ahead. It, it's, it, a law is nothing when it can't be policed. And with the digital revolution, that's where we already are, but it's going to change in ways you can't imagine. Things I think we'll see by 2020 available in mass, 3D printers. I know you can get them now. I know they're getting cheaper, but the truth is right now 3D printers suck. 3D printers are now in like the daisy wheel or dot matrix world of regular printers. Remember dot matrix? Remember that? Okay. Uh, or the daisy wheel. Do you remember the daisy wheel, guys? It was like, bat, 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 bat. it sounded like a typewriter. It was a wheel shaped like a daisy for those of you that aren't old enough. And it was just basically that. It was a great big wheel. It had every character on it and had a little hammer thing. And the wheel just would spin back and forth. And it would just spin like A, B, C, D. And it would That is where 3D printing is right now. People get them, they print doodads and digamabobs and things like that. We're going to have a day when your 3D printer can basically build you anything that you want. And it'll move out of the techie nerd space into mainstream space, and 60-year-old people will have 3D printers. If you can work a smartphone today, by 2020 to 2025, you'll have a 3D printer in your house. It will only be the people that are so technophobic that they'll never do it, the last generation that will you know be here without that type of technology. Um, self-driving cars will be on regular roads. Not everybody will have one. They won't be everywhere. But there will be legally acceptable autonomous vehicles on our roads before 2020 comes to a close. And this is going to change everything. This is going to change everything. One of the things it's going to do, it's going to, it's going to devastate people that are making a living right now on services like Lyft and Uber. Because you're just going to have a car come pick you up. I know, again, this is one of those things that people just go, that cannot be, that can't be. No, it won't happen. Okay, wait a minute. And, and the biggest reason you could give, legitimate reason you could give is, well, the, the people that have those jobs, the industry won't let it happen. They'll guild it back. So if I told you in 1995 that there would be a service like Uber or a service like Lyft or some of the other six or seven that are out there now that are getting to be quite prominent... You would said the, the cab industry would have prevented it. But what happened is, see, these, these technological disruptions come at such speed that the previous incarnation cannot adapt fast enough. Do you know what I love about Uber over cabs? It's not saving money. Because if I take Uber Black, I pay about the same as a, as a cab, right? And I would usually take an Uber Black unless I'm doing a lot of traveling around when I'm, when I'm out and about. No, what I love about Uber is the convenience of the technology. The ability to pull my phone up and go, there's three drivers in my area. There's a black, there's an X, and there's a regular. And uh, I can have this one in five minutes or this one in ten if I want to wait a little longer for a nicer car. And I'm only going down the road like five miles. Here's my estimated fares. 
yeah, I'll just take the, 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 the low-end one today because I just need a five-minute ride, boom. And I can watch that driver on my phone pick me up. And in some of the vehicles, I can get in and play my music on their vehicle. The, the, the cost savings is not what has made Uber successful. It's the convenience, the reliability, the dependability, the instantaneous nature. Not calling somebody and going, well, we'll get somewhere. Or running around the streets of New York City waving at 57 yellow cars as they drive past you. Some with no one in it, and they just don't stop. I mean, do they have a reason for not stopping? Sure. I'm sure they do. I don't know why. All I know is I can't get a cab, but I can get an Uber like that. Bam, done. That's a technological disruption. And when you add self-driving cars to that, the companies that would block it are the ones that are going to do it. It's Uber that's going to do it first. There'll be people that say, there's no reason for me to have a car anymore. There's a lot of people already doing that with Uber. Or they've gone from two-car to one-car families because of services like Uber. This will just compound and continue. And the more people that lose jobs don't have money because they have to go to one income, etc., the more people will say, we don't need the expense of that car. If I need to go do something when the car's gone, you see what I mean. Virtual reality is going to be on its way by 2020 to being the biggest industry ever. The biggest industry ever. Not just a mega industry, the biggest industry that has ever been known. It will make gaming look like a joke. Virtual reality is just beginning to come out of its daisy wheel matrix, you know, dot matrix printer stage. It's just going beyond being some glasses that let you play a video game and not see what's around you. It's just beginning. We we are headed for almost, not quite, but almost the experience of the holodeck from Star Trek probably by 2030. Where there's actually things that make you feel the wind, that make you feel that somebody pushed you. A lot of it can be done just by tricking your brain, and they're figuring out how to do that. I mean, you can experience that if you go to an IMAX theater. Uh, we go to the one here in Fort Worth, and they have this thing where you feel like you're in a helicopter flying over the city, and you feel movement. Some people actually feel sick. You don't move at all. It just tricks your brain. If we add certain pressure sensors and things like that, things inside of our clothing, virtual reality will be the biggest industry on the planet by 2030. And it will be hitting its stride and in, in becoming the next thing by 2020. And it's going to be for a variety of reasons. One, because it's just cool as shit to think about. But it's going to be another thing is, in this period, people are going to want things they can't get, but they can have the experience. Total Recall, guys. Okay. Not all the spooky, you know, totalitarian shit, though there's some of that to worry about too. But the whole concept of instead of going on a vacation, you get the experiences of a vacation. Instead of being implanted in your head in, in you know, 30 seconds and then it's like 30 days of vacation, it'll actually be real time. But think about it. Think about the first company that builds a true virtual reality machine that can go into your home and you can literally decide you want to take a walk through the redwood forest now and really really feel like you're there or talk to a parent who recorded their own images and words for you who's gone or talk to historical figures that are not here anymore 
Now, we could do things with extrapolation, like Thomas Jefferson and whatever, but people that are still here, that are physically still here, will leave behind legacies in virtual reality. Again, I know that sounds like you know Buck Rogers, Star Wars, Star Trek shit, but it's it's so obvious that that's where we're headed. It, it, it is it, again, it is going to be the largest industry ever created. I am I'm telling you that right now. Um, let's talk about some bad things because all this sounds pretty good overall. Um, the student loan bubble is not going to just pop; it will explode either by 2020 or not very long after. It is not going to be a pop like the tech bubble or a pop like the housing bubble. It's going to be an explosion because you'll never fix it. It's impossible to fix because it's going to fail on all sides. So the housing bubble. Here's the housing bubble failure, right? So we gave money to people who didn't have enough money to pay back the loans, and those people eventually defaulted on the loans. Duh. This created a glut in housing, Because we were still building like crazy because the cycle of pump and dump with these loans was still going on. When the first loans began to fall, the first houses came on the market as being foreclosed. Uh, this created an abundance of housing options beyond what was in demand, which then cascaded into an overall recession, which cost a lot of good, hardworking people who had borrowed money to buy houses. They could service their debt right up until they lost their job to then lose their jobs. And next thing we know, about 8 million to 9 million Americans lose their jobs in their houses. The, the thing was, people still need houses. People still need houses. No way, no way around that. People still need houses. Houses still have value. Dirt still has value. So what happened was, is it flushed itself out. People adapted, overcome, did what they had to do, found new jobs, went back and bought lesser houses, rented, whatever. But in the end, the other thing that happened was the production ceased. We stopped building houses. And that's why a lot of the country right now is booming for real estate. Just, you know, what, seven, eight years later. Because they stopped the new housing starts, and as the economy recovered, people are going back to buy houses. And now there's less houses because nobody's been building any. A lot of the really old shitty ones have been torn down, demolished, dumped, and abandoned. And nobody wants those, so they don't count even though they're technically still there. So you have recovery. Yay! Okay, that's not going to happen with the student loan bubble. When the student loan bubble pops, the false sense of security in borrowing that money will go away, and unlike my prediction about fuel, it will never come back. It will never come back. The education system will have shifted. The education concept and paradigm will have shifted. And if you just begin to wrap your head around the economic engine that selling degrees is on so many levels, when we pull the plug on that, it is trillions of dollars poof, gone. It's not just the more than $1 trillion or whatever it is that students owe right now. That is a cakewalk, guys. That's just the beginning. This one is already, you should see this. I'm saying the world will see it by 2020. You should see this now. Here's the reality. In the United States of America, as of June 2014, the student loan debt in our country exceeded $1.2 trillion, with over 7 million people in default. That doesn't mean paying slowly. That means they're just not paying. Public universities increased their fees by 
0.7% over the five years ending in 2012, or 20% adjusted for inflation. So by tw from five years up to 2012, the cost of going to school went up 20%. The debt exceeded $1 trillion, and 7 million debtors have defaulted. That means they're not paying. Now, the government is guaranteeing the loans and all. A trillion dollars is a shitload. You can't guarantee it. And there's not, the money's not there. It doesn't exist. I guess they could print it. But here's why you can't fix this one. You can't backfill it. You can't have a TARP bailout for this. What's Because what's going to happen is the demand's not going to come back. you, you got to understand, this, this, this trillion-dollar debt load, it's all the people servicing it. All the people out there servicing it. And the new money coming in, it keeps it running. So there's people that are paying off their loans or they're paying on them so long they might as well name their student loan because they have it longer than their dog or whatever it is. Okay? You might as well haul a pet. If your dog lives 16 years and your student loan lives 20, you might as well name it. I'm just saying. But they're doing that. They're servicing their debt. And they're servicing it for more than they borrowed because of interest on it. And then you got the new group of suckers, I mean students, coming in the door, their parents pushing them through, telling them it's okay, borrow money, it's okay. And as people begin to default more and more and more and more and more, you start to have a lot of people are struggling to make their payments, but they're doing it, say, well, why am I doing this? And as more and more it comes to a head that, hey, unlike your house, here's the other thing, unlike your house, they sure, they can try to garnish your wages, they can do all kinds of, they can you know, prevent you from getting credit or whatever it is, but they can't take your education back. They can't repossess it. They can't throw you out of your house because you don't pay your student loan, at least not yet. Okay, And as people start to realize that, and what happens when 50% of those servicing their debt just default? And if they're not working, I'm just saying. Because they can't get a job, I'm just saying. And then what happens to the other end of it? They stop coming in the door. Now this is not me beating up on the education system. This is the economic reality of where we're at with the technology evolving away where it shouldn't cost a person this much money to get a basic college education anymore, if they even need it, for this new society that we're going to be living in. You can't prop it back up. It's not like housing where you stop, you stop building houses. Because when you stop having new students come in, then the, the, the universities begin to collapse onto themselves. And all those tenured professors making lots of money to sit around and exist can't really afford them anymore. This is a multi-trillion dollar industry. The, the debt load is just how it's being fueled right now. Okay, then how many of those people have cars and trucks and need service on them and houses that they have to make payments on? What happens when you have massive layoffs in the education sector? How does that cascade through other sectors? And where do they go? What do they do? What is a person whose only qualification is to teach 11th grade or, I don't know, French poetry in, in college? What, where do they go? What do they do? When everybody else is scrambling for jobs and they've never had a job in their life that was anything other than being a teacher, and I'm not putting teachers down, I'm just saying they've never changed oil, right? They don't know how to do that, and robots are doing that shit anyway. They've never busted a tire down. They can't frame a house. They can't change a part on a car. They can't, they can't do anything, many of them. They don't know how. Even if they can, they don't know how yet. And how are they going to compete with people that do? What are they going to do? It's done. 
when the, when this bubble explodes, this student loan bubble explodes, it's going to be a cascading ripple through the entire United States economy, the global economy, frankly. And education will never look the same again. And it's going out anyway. There'll be 10% of the major universities left, probably by 2030, 2035, 10%, in their current form. They may go online, they may do virtual reality. So I mean, think about how this all cascades together. If you can do virtual reality, then why can't a student sit down in a chair, put on a, a helmet, and be in class? Interactive, two-way. Why, why do you need to move them to a Why does there need to be a building? Why do we need a book? Why do we need a book? We don't even need an e-book. If we have virtual reality, we can literally have the unfolding in front of people. And how many teach, How many students can one teacher teach? How many students can be taught by a program, at least the basics and the core, and only need help where they, where they stumble and fall? And how much of that can be automated? I mean, we're just beginning to peel this onion, guys, and it's going to make you cry. It really is. Just want to put this one trillion dollars plus, one point two trillion in student loan in perspective for you. A trillion is a thousand billion dollars. And on top of that little problem, the United States government has something like a hundred and fifty trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities between now and twenty fifty, and that's if everything pretty much goes the way that it's supposed to. That's $150 trillion we're saying we're not going to have. That's a nice way of saying by 2050, the U.S. national debt, if it survives that long, would be $150 trillion. That's what that means. I don't know if anybody ever explained it to you that way, but that's that's the future debt. Oh, wait a minute. It's $150 trillion plus the $20 trillion we already owe. That we owe 18.1. So it's $170 trillion debt by 2050. Where's the breaking point? I don't know, but I think it's before that. Another thing, government is going to take over health care. People will beg them to. I won't belabor this one because I've said it before. But the expense is going to be so high that people will just say, I don't care anymore. I don't care. It sucks. And, and the quality of care is going to go down. As more and more people are stressed out about it. More and more doctors are quitting. Trying to figure out something else to do. Write a book or something. And you're having this entire flux in that industry and move toward automation in that industry. The only hope is that eventually you get the automation to such a point that the cost of care goes down. But in the interim, so the government will take over health care and people will beg them to. There will also be a commercial real estate crash and it will do so in a way that will make 2008, 2009 look like a day at Disneyland. There are so many brick-and-mortar stores that there's no need for anymore, and people are just beginning to figure this out. There are strip malls all over the, the country right now with no tenants in them, or there's like five openings and there's like one business in there. And they're brand new. These aren't old ones that are dilapidated. The old ones are dilapidated. Here's what they did. They built new ones, and then the old dilapidated ones, people moved out of the old dilapidated ones into the new ones, But half of the people didn't move out. Half of the people went out of business or were already out of business. But they almost built an exact duplicate. Like there was 20 spaces here, so we put 20 new spaces there in this better part of town. And 10 of them fill up. And 10 of them are empty. This is now, during recovery. 
the, the, the two big crashes in the next five years is the education, the education industry. The whole thing. The loan bubble is just a piece of it. But it is the, uh, it's the keystone. That when it cracks, the whole thing tumbles down on top of it. And commercial real estate. Commercial real estate. It has to. I'm watching giant stores go from being Barnes and Noble bookstore to the container store. Huh. How much money did they spend to move all of that stuff in there and build, I mean, a massive, over at the Park Highlands, right? They built this massive, I think it was, about, it was actually Borders Books. They had to have millions into this one store. It didn't make it two years. Now it's the container store. Now it sells Tupperware. Do we need a container store? Can we not buy everything that's at the container store online? But, you know, I can't really tell if it's going to fit just by dimensions. When you can put on a pair of glasses and visually hold it in your hand before you order it. Or, I don't really need to order this thing. This is cool. And the printer prints out your container. I mean, I know, but people like to shop, Jack. Well, people like to do a lot of things, but what if they don't need to go to have the experience? See, and this is what people don't understand. We can destroy industries in this country by having them contract 5%. Because they're built to scale up. They're not built to scale down. If our GDP, if our total output in this country goes down 1%, the whole country's an economic catastrophe. 1%. Oh, You'll be wishing for 1%. Of course, this all leads to the obvious. The stock market is going to crash hard. The big crash people have been waiting for for their whole lives. Probably in the next five years. Definitely in the next ten. As all of this cascades, the stock market has to collapse. The differences with the market versus the education industry, this one can rebuild itself again. We can have a new... Shift in paradigm. Because the market can respond. Government can't. And the education system is largely the government. Even private universities and whatever. The whole system is built on a government-created paradigm. And it's, it's, it's been protected by government. Where, where these, these companies are going to be the ones building this virtual reality shit. So we can have this massive thump of the market. And you'll see a lot of phony baloney bullshit in a recovery where they delist and relist new stocks. So if you lost the money, even though the market comes back, you don't come back. And so you're going to have a massive stock market crash. The government is going to start taking over everything that it can. Everything that it can take over. Everything it can grab onto and say, only we can do this. And they're going to hold on to things that they know they can't hold on to for as long as possible. The government is going to go into survival mode. The government actually already is in survival mode. I'm not that smart, guys. I'm not. I'm not the only one that knows all this shit's coming. There are people telling our government officials every day, this and more, that this is all going to happen. And what they're what they're thinking, because they think like government, protectionism. How do we hold on? How do we hold on to it? How do we keep control? How do we maintain control? The government doesn't evolve and adapt until it absolutely has to. The government is like the person that will never capitulate until not only is the knife at its throat, but blood is beginning to flow and the tip is beginning to go in and you're beginning to feel it go right up against the thorax uh, or the, the, the esophagus, I mean. And it's just about to cut into your windpipe. Whoa, whoa, okay, 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 we'll change. That's how government is. Industry moves a lot quicker. 
And the heads of these major corporations notice this coming too. They're planning for it. They're planning their evolution of technology. So the government's going to try to grab what industry creates like it always has. But it will use the fear of terrorism and the fear of pain and suffering and misery to gather popular support for it. When what the population should be doing is turning toward the evolution. The government's going to beg you to hold on to the status quo. And the status quo is dead. And they know it, but they think if we can hold on long enough, we'll be able to steal enough of the new status quo to maintain our power. And they may or may not be. I don't know. Dozens, even hundreds of pension funds will fail. Not in the next 15 years, by 2020. You're going to start seeing them pop like, like, like bubbles. Couple here, a couple there, and then as we get further into like 2018, 2019, you'll start seeing all of these municipal pensions, city pensions, things like that. Boom, 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 boom. And that's all these people that thought they had a safe, secure retirement getting part or none of it. Which is going to have this overall collapsing effect on the economy, the stock market, the education system, all of it. Because, you see, this is the cat. See, people don't realize this is why this time is different. All of this stuff is intermeshed. The kid who's supposed to be the next dupe to take out $50,000, $60,000, $100,000 in loans to get a degree in whatever, they don't know their major until their third year because you don't have to pick one, is looking at their, their, their older brother with no job, their parents losing a job and having one family member working, living in a smaller house, and their grandfather losing his pension. And he worked for the government that he always told was safe. And you want me, I'm not going to do this. And it's just, it rolls. It just starts rolling against each other. We've, we've, we've pushed everything so artificially high that when it comes down, it's, you know, the, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. The higher up you go, the worse the crash. And, and that's where we are with everything right now. Domestic terrorism is going to get worse too. We're not smart enough to stop jacking around with the Middle East. We, we, we have our, our current ass clown in chief. He's doubled down. We're going to destroy ISIS now. He was on the TV this morning. We have got to go destroy ISIS. That's a great idea. Why didn't you do it eight years ago? Oh, it didn't exist eight years ago until you created it. But we've had this problem for a few years. What, now, now because there was a shooting, you're going to go do it? That would infer that you could have done it up till now, but you didn't. When we go in and we disrupt these nations... We breed hatred for ourselves. Even if our intentions are good, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And we've done so much so bad in so many places now. Everything's worse. And whether it's domestic terrorism that's homegrown, or whether it's people getting into this country to do us harm, we're going to have more mass shootings. We're going to have more bombings. We're going to have more of this. And when I say more, I don't just mean, well, as many as we had again. I mean having them going off like popcorn. Another one today, another one next week, another one next month, that type of thing. I believe we're going to have a day in America. It'll be one of our worst days ever. It might make 9-11 not look so bad. We're instead of a Sandy Hook and, uh, you know, a, 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 a Colorado theater and in Orlando, you have all three of those and six more on the same day. And instead of one lone gunman, multiple gunmen or firing bombs what have you. And it is, as our country is weakened economically, th th this is the time that they'll, they'll attack more. Because they'll sense this is the time that if we make them suffer enough, when they've got enough of their own problems, that they'll retreat from our part of the world and they'll go away. And they might be right about that.
I'm not saying doing it's right. I say, I'm saying the logic might be correct. That the time you could push us out would be the time that we're weak enough domestically. Or in the words of Ronald Reagan, no, anim- no, no country has ever been attacked because they were perceived to be too strong. That you are attacked when you, when you are perceived to be weak or when you actually are weak and you're known to be weak. And as we weaken and as the hatred continues, because what is the plan for the next president overseas? Donald Trump's going to bomb the shit out of him, and Hillary Clinton's going to bomb him in the way that Barack Obama has been bombing them. So we're just going to keep doing that shit. So do you think they're going to get more angry with us or less angry with us? Do you think any of these people are going to win this war? Do you think this is a winnable quagmire at this point? Do you really? I mean, really think about what we've done. Think of every nation we've touched and ask yourself today, is it worse off or better off for us being there? Um, President Bush was fond of saying the world is better without Saddam Hussein in it. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm not saying the guy was a good guy. I certainly wouldn't have had him over to play Canasta. I have no real feelings of remorse that Saddam Hussein is dead. I'm not like, you know, we should uh, we should mourn the loss of Saddam Hussein. He was a vicious maniacal, murderous asshole, and I sure wish one of his own people would have just hit him in the head with a freaking rock and killed him. I, okay? But Iraq is in worse shape today than it was under Saddam Hussein for the average Iraqi. It's worse. It absolutely is. There's no way around it. Libya is worse. Egypt is worse. Afghanistan is worse. When are we going to realize that if we keep making shit worse, we should stop? Even if it's bad, if us involving ourselves makes it worse, we shouldn't do that anymore. We've made the Middle East worse for almost 100 years now. Maybe it's time we take a different approach. But we're not. here's the thing. This is not a show about what we should do. This is a show about what's going to happen. We are not going to. We're going to double down. Your next president probably is Donald Trump, by the way. If I'm going to make predictions today. But you might as well flip a coin on that. And all I'm saying is there's a little bit of weight to make the coin a little more likely to come up heads than tails, but it could still come up tails. Okay? But I think the smart money right now would be on Donald Trump. And every bad thing that happens between now and Election Day benefits Trump and hurts Hillary Clinton. If Trump loses, and he could, it will only be because he hasn't learned to not say certain things. If he just says the right things from now until November, he's the next president. And if he doesn't, i got to believe he's smart enough and the plan was to make sure Hillary got elected all along. I'm just saying. Um, but I, I can't believe that at this point. I really can't. So the plan is more of that. So you're going to see more domestic terrorism. It all sucks, right? I mean, stock market crash, the end of the education industry, uh, commercial real estate crash, millions millions and millions of jobs lost, pension funds failing, Student loan bubble popping. The hell do we do about all this? We, you have to understand that in this type of a situation, there isn't a solution. There's lots of little solutions to be enacted at the individual level until such time as we can collectively develop larger solutions and then multiple big solutions to multiple big problems. You, you can't fix this. You can't. And you, at this point, I don't believe it can be prevented. I believe if we took people that all understood this completely and all of them really did put the people's best interest at heart, 
and weren't sold out to industry and weren't sold out to uh, lifetime politics and weren't sold out to tyranny and, and weren't looking for power. If we took people that were smart, capable, and compassionate and put them in charge, that we might be able to mitigate what's coming, but we still couldn't eliminate it. It's, it's, it's too late. It's like having someone come to you and you're a personal trainer. And they say to you, I, I want you to help me be more healthy. And you go, well, let's take a look at you. What's up? Well, I have three types of cancer, and I smoke and drink every day, and I've done that for 40 years. I'm uh, 150 pounds overweight, and uh, I eat you know, large-soaked donuts for breakfast and half for my whole life. Um, I have diabetes, and I have uh, pancreatic failure, um, and uh, I have gangrene in my feet. Okay, stop doing all that bad stuff, and maybe you'll live a little longer, but you're screwed and you're going to die. You're done. You've done too much damage. I can't fix it. No doctor can fix it. No surgery can fix it. You're going to die. The only thing you can do is maybe die a little less painful, a little less fast, but you're going to die. So make preparations for death. Okay? I'm not saying we're all going to die. This is a metaphor. But this is what we have to prepare for. The death of the current paradigms. They're going to die. And it's not the first time this has ever happened. Again, it's different this time. Because the level of technology, the level of sophistication, the, the speed of disruption, and the quality of life. This is one of the big things we don't understand. One of the biggest reasons this could hurt is because how high the quality of life is for the average American today, including what we'd call poor people. Poor people today live better than some middle-class people did 100 years ago. They have a TV, they have an air conditioning, they have a nice house. Maybe it's a shitty house, but they made it that way. They might live in a bad neighborhood, but they all chose to make it that way. I mean, in the end, they have all the things that they need. They're fed, they have medical care. I mean, pfft. We have many poor people in this country right now living better than working people. You know, People that are on welfare and assistance living better than working people. Because they don't have any concern about where their next dollar is coming from. Well, what if they did? What if they did? That's, that's where we're at. So there's no one solution. One is the most basic one you could always do. Right now we should be working hard, saving, and protecting our wealth. Because whatever does happen... The more you have as it happens and through it, the better you'll be able to adapt to it and overcome it. Next is develop hard and soft skills. You need to know how to do shit. You need to know how to get shit done. You need to fix stuff that breaks. You need to know how to communicate with other people. You need to know how to go to negotiate. You need to know how to bargain. You need to know how to barter. You need to know how to be able to work with a neighbor and say, I can do this and you can do that. Let's forego money and barter. And, and, and a lot of people have talked about barter, and barter happens here and there, but we're going to move to a very much barter-based economy. I'll talk more about what I think could happen in, in a best-case scenario toward the end here, and we're getting close to that anyway. Stay up-to-date on technology, including all the social media you think is pointless. When you hear people like talk about Slack, what's that? I don't care. You need to care. Because the jobs of tomorrow are going to use all of this technology. And the, the thing is, this stuff's going to blow up and fail. Blow up and fail. Blow up and fail. Okay? For every Facebook, there'll be 20 that never make it to that level. But whatever the next one is, you need to be there when it happens. 
Because Facebook is on its way out. It really is. It's useful. I won't stop using it for what it's useful for. But it's it, it, the, the next generation is not going to give a shit. There's going to be things that are much better for what they want to do. If your mom is using a social media platform, it's on its way out. If your grandmother uses it, it's done. Doesn't mean it's done tomorrow, but it's it's reached it's reached where it's going to be, unless it radically evolves. And this is the problem. Once you have a massive user base, it's hard to radically evolve without disenfranchising them and making them unhappy. They quit, they leave, they go elsewhere. You can't have also rants. If you look at Google's thing that they did, circles or whatever, it just really has. It, it's actually better than Facebook, and it really just hasn't ever caught on because it's just an also rant. It's like another Facebook, and we did a few things differently. It has to go to a, a, a new level. And, and some of it, I don't get it, but I still at least pay attention. Like Snapchat. Oh, you can put up a few-second video. What the hell do I care about that? You might. You might. So stay on these new technologies. Create groups. Create community. Create relationships. We're going to need each other to get through this. We need to stop thinking about things from a divisive manner. We can disagree about the way things should be, but we need to stop this concept of, well, I can't work with him or her because they're a Democrat or because they're a Republican, because they're a statist and I'm an anarchist. I'll work with anybody if the goal that I'm working on with them is common. Now, if the goal is uncommon, like if I want to advance gun rights and you want to detract from gun rights, I'm not working with you on gun rights. You're, you're counter to my goal. You'll have to go find somebody else to work with that. But if someone shows up and wants to plant a whole shitload of trees in a neighborhood to feed people, and that person happens to be Annie Gunn, I'm not sending them away. I'm going to hand them a shovel. I'm going to hand them a shovel. Because, well, maybe they'll learn something about security as we work together. And maybe that'll change their mind. And maybe it won't. But one way or another, the trees go in the ground. We need to build those relationships, those communities. There's also never been a time in history more suited to basic preparedness. Food storage, water storage, emergency medical supplies, all the stuff we talk about all the time. You know, th this would be a good time to think, over the next four years, I'm going to get myself two to three times more prepared than I am now. If, you, if you're somewhere where you're basically prepared. And if you're not, you're going to get past basic. You have to go zero past basic in the next four to five years. Because I'm not saying that you'll lose your job. I'm not saying that this thing will really hit you hard individually. I don't know. I just know this is going to hit a lot of people hard. And you need to prepare that it might be you. That, that, that's, a, that's a fundamental reality here. And another thing you have to do is don't be afraid. When you fear, you capitulate to tyranny. All these things the government is going to want to take over and control and invade, they're going to use fear to do it. And the people that are most afraid will be the most rapid to capitulate. That's what I mean with the healthcare thing. That's why I know it's going to happen. It's too in your face for it not to happen. But there's so many other places where maybe it doesn't have to happen. Or maybe it doesn't have to happen for everybody. Don't be afraid. Be open to radical change at the systems level. I mean, just so you can see what's coming. If you're not open to change, you'll never see it. So I'm not saying that the change should be made or the change will always be good. But here's the reality. There are, there are going to be times in history where no matter what you think about a paradigm, it's going to shift 
And you might think, there's ten better ways for this to shift. But you need to be open to the fact that it's shifting and see what way it's shifting because this stuff is bigger than any of us individually. You're not going to vote it away. You're not going to stand out in the street with a sign and make it go away because you held up a sign. You're not going to put up an online petition to make it go away. It's going to happen. If you know it's happening as it's happening, you can adapt to it and you can do better than if you didn't. So you have to be open to radical change. What I'm saying in the end here is you have to be a willow, not an oak. People think like the oak tree is the ultimate you know, foundation in strength. Huge, tall, they grow hundreds of years. But in a strong enough windstorm, an oak will snap because it can't give. But a huge willow tree will sway, and it will stand. And even if it has branches torn off it, it just grows back. And, and that's in some ways how we have to be. We have to be martial artists in life. We have to just accept certain blows and redirect them. And as they go past us, say, okay, now what do I do? That hurt, but I'm not dead. I can still fog a mirror, so I got something different to do. I mean, there's a lot of ways that this could transform that could be very positive. One of the things I've said recently is what kind of economy can we replace the current one with? One I would like to talk about as a possible thing. I'm not saying this is going to happen at all. I've, I've told you what I think is going to happen, what I think you should do. I'm just giving you some interesting observations here. What if we had something more akin to a tithe-based economy, but not to churches? So that... When someone came into your life and did something positive for you, you just you, you, you tithed them whatever you thought it was worth. As simple as, hey, do you know how to get to, because my GPS isn't working right, and I'm not sure where, oh, yeah, that place is right down there. Here's five bucks. Like that. It became normal. I'm not saying it will, but I'm just saying, what if the very act of being kind became profitable? I know it sounds like a utopia, but it doesn't mean that it would be a utopia, and it doesn't mean that it can't happen. The more abundance we create, the more you can get to that. And a lot of this technological evolution, its eventual destiny is massive abundance. I've said this before, but men killed men with sword and spear and club in wars over salt and pepper in our history. There have been wars fought over salt and pepper. You've never seen one. I've never seen one. God willing, we'll never go to that level of apocalypse that we'll ever see one. But why? Because salt and pepper are abundant, they are plentiful, and they are cheap. And there's no need to go to war for them because of those things. Right now we go to war over energy and control of human beings. And see, that's the thing. There's always been... A, a commodity at the center of the war used to control the human beings. But we go to war to control human beings, to control others' behaviors, to make them do what we want, or for us to be made to do what they want. That's why we go to war. People don't fight wars, or people don't, people don't go to war. Nations go to war. Countries go to war. Governments go to war. And then they take their people, they rally them around an ideal or a thing, or a commodity, or a belief, or a perceived morality, and they send them off to fight the war. What if they had a war and nobody went? We can only dream of that. But this is, this is where we're headed. I'm not sure how we evolve. I'm just telling you we've reached a point where we have to, and to be ready for it. And to see all of these things I'm talking about as signs that it's coming, and it's coming fast. Um, 
With that, I want to remind you guys, if you like this show and want to support the work I do, do consider becoming a member of the Support Brigade today because uh, that is the number one way that I am able to provide this information and entertainment to you. You can just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, and you get a lot of great stuff, including discounts, the things you're probably already buying for your preparedness, for one major thing there. So uh, do consider becoming a member of the Support Brigade today. And if you're going to buy anything on Amazon, uh, one of the innovators in automation that's, that's changing the world, you can go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Go there, shop on Amazon like you always do, and uh, you will uh, you will get, do some good for us here at TSP. I mean, it's that easy. You don't spend any more money. You don't spend any more time. You don't spend any more effort. You don't work any harder. Just do it. And now every day I have a different item that I either use in my own home or one of you guys have recommended uh, that will show up on Amazon. But then if you don't want that, just get whatever the heck you want to. tspaz.com. And I said build community day. Build it economically with other members of our community. That's really important. And you can do that by becoming a member of our business directory. Today, uh, our featured directory member is Deborah Burner. She produces original artwork, watercolors, that feature subjects from everyday ranching and farming life. She offer, also offers functional art in the form of business or ranch logos. Check out Deborah's listings at the TSP Business Directory. And, of course, there will be a link for Deborah in today's show notes. And uh, with that... I want to get into today's closing song. I was trying to think of something cool to play today. I almost played 25-25 again for you. But, you know, I hope what you got out of today's show is what's going to happen is somewhat known and somewhat unknown. We know all we know a lot of things that will occur either next five to ten years, somewhere in that range. And we know that they'll, they'll ferret themselves out in some way. But we don't really know what the results are really going to be or the adaptations are going to be. We have a, a history as a society that we don't adapt until we're forced to. Fortunately for the human species, we've been pretty good at doing it even in the last minute um, as a species, not as individuals. We've had a lot of death and gnashing and wailing and all types of, of horrific things because we've waited till the last minute over history. But as a species, we've managed to get through some pretty tough times. Um, from a bottleneck in our population that reduced us to almost extinction at one time in the anthropological record. We still came back from that. And God willing, we'll always be able to do that. But in the end, all that means is these types of things are not new. They've always happened. Technology has always been disruptive. People have always lost jobs. Economies have always shifted and twisted, and forms of government have shifted and twisted. I think that's another thing people don't realize, that when you look at the government, You think to yourself, well, you know, this is kind of what government is. The government wasn't always this way. We had a feudal system that we evolved into a, a democratic system. And uh, I know it's a republic, but it's also a democratically elected republic. What makes us think we're done with that evolution, that there might not be a new form of government? Not uh, an older form of government, but a new evolution of government that might actually offer greater freedom or greater tyranny. We don't really know. We just don't. And when we say we do, we're being disingenuous because it just, does, it just doesn't work that way, guys. Um, so it's not really what you're going to do, but it's your attitude. It's your attitude. Like I said, you can't sit around living in fear. You've got to have the right attitude. So the song that I've um, got for you today is It's the Only One You've Got by Three Doors Down. This is a new song. I think it's like seven years old, and that's a new song to me. Um, you've got to live this life like it's the only one you've got. It's pretty redundant when you think about it because, well, 
It is the only one you've got. I think my favorite line in this song is you hide behind your walls of maybe-nevers. I think there's so much of our society hiding behind their walls of maybe-nevers today. And no matter what's coming, you got to try. you got to make effort. you got to be out there. you got to get in the game. you got to pick up a bat if you're going to hit a ball. you got to take a shot if you're going drop to drop a ball in the net. You, you, you can't sit and wait and say, well, I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to see what comes. I'm going to figure it out when it happens. You're going to have to get out there and play offense and, and, and not hide behind your walls of maybe and, and, and never. You see, the maybe is, well, maybe one day I will, and never is I can't, I won't, but it's also, well, that'll never happen. That's what's going to hit people in all this stuff I talked about today, the belief that it can never happen. So if you don't believe it can ever happen, you don't want to accept that it can ever happen, you put your head in the sand, like we talked about in the article yesterday, when it does happen, it's here and it's too late. There's two types of people in the world. There's a type of person in the world that looks at their arm or their shoulder or their, 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 their leg, they see a mark on it that they've never seen before, and they think that, that could be cancer, it could be skin cancer. And even if their person doesn't go to the doctor much, they go, I, I don't know what that is, and they go to the doctor. The doctor looks at it and goes, yep, skin cancer. And boop. Plop, and it's gone. And maybe a little scar or something, but it's actually one of the most curable things in the world. And then there's the person that goes, no, that can't be cancer. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And then by the time they go, it's a serious problem and maybe even lethal. And that's the never crowd. Uh, it can't happen, it never will happen. And that's what a lot of these things in life are. Debt is cancer. Debt, oh, it'll be all right. I don't have to worry about it. I'll pay it off someday. And then you're 55, and you realize you can't retire in 10 years like you thought you were going to because of a debt. And your whole life's destroyed. Your marriage is a shambles. Your kids are now going into debt, and you don't know what to do about it. That's the maybe-nevers. Don't hide behind you walls, maybe-nevers. Play offense, guys. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Have never